0: good to go okay Uh, good evening everyone and uh, welcome to our October Fusatsu our atonement ceremony and as I look around the room I think most of you have done a number of fusatsus, but there are a couple of you who haven't done uh, done maybe only one and online I think uh most of you have done it but maybe a couple people for whom it's new I'm not going to say too much about the ceremony itself but I did want to call your attention to the beginning um at the beginning we chant the verse of atonement and we recognize that we are not separate from all evil karma that's ever been committed on account of our greed anger and ignorance born of our body mouth and thought and so uh, this recognition is not something that we do intellectually in this ceremony we engage with it directly Um, and the way we do that is through our body mouth and thoughts we engage with it and we atone for it and are at one with it through the bowing and the chanting and the attention that we pay during the ceremony. And just in the, that engagement, we are uh, completely connected with it without any kind of separation created by our, in our minds. And then once we've done that, we have the next part of the ceremony where we uh, connect with all of the different manifestations of the enlightened mind um, that we call Buddha. The um, the spirit of um, compassion, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of vow and service, all the different uh, manifestations of Buddha enlightened mind and again we don't do that intellectually we do it directly and experientially how by letting go of our thoughts and just giving ourselves whole body and mind to the bowing and the chanting and attention to liturgy and it's right there and then the next stage having acknowledged our oneness our at-one-ment with Uh, the enlightened mind, we um, say the vows of, um, the bodhisattva vows, to be of service in the world and to wake up. And again, we do it through wholehearted and whole body uh, engagement and attention. So really, uh, in the ceremony, all you have to do is bow and chant and pay attention and it's all, it's all right there. It's all, uh, you can atone for it all and be at one with it all. It's, it's actually very simple. It seems like a, maybe a fancy liturgical thing, but it's actually a very simple process. And then that takes us to this part of the ceremony where we reflect uh, briefly on the precepts, which are our ethical guidelines that can help us to fulfill our bodhisattva vows. So, in my uh, small corner of the universe, um, there are a couple of luminaries who just passed away. Uh, two days ago, it was Mike Davis. Mike Davis, uh, some of you might know, was a writer from Southern California, um, working class background. He ended up writing, be a public intellectual who wrote on all sorts of different topics, from the history of the American labor movement to a great book on the history and political economy and culture of Los Angeles. Uh, He wrote a book on famine in South Asia under British colonialism, another book on the car bomb. Um, So he had his critics and the critics tended to say, He's, he's very apocalyptic and kind of a doomsday thinker. Um, but others saw kind of a prophetic side because he, um, his writing in some ways anticipated the 1992 uprising in Los Angeles after the beating of Rodney King. Um, he, in some ways, his writings anticipated all of the ecological disasters involving wildfires in southern california and beyond uh, with the uh, encroachment of uh, urban settlement in areas that where it really was not very wise Um, he wrote a book on the epidemiological disaster that would be to come Uh, again having to do with The destabilization of of older patterns of human settlement and relationship with nature and uh, at the end of his life he gave an interview and someone asked him the journalist said "Um, the act of organizing seems to rest on hope for changing the world but your books paint a grim picture ecological collapse, political corruption, white supremacy, the continuing immiseration of the global poor, how do you hold on to hope? And he said, I don't think that people fight or stay the course because of hope. I think people do it out of love and anger. And that struck me. The other person who passed away last month was Barbara Ehrenreich, another person of working class, family background, a lifelong socialist and feminist, who wrote on a wide variety of topics. Uh, her best known book is Nickel and Dime, where she worked for a time in the um, um, minimum wage sector to get a sense for what it was like. Uh, first-hand sense for what it was like and how people could make things meet and what she found is they couldn't it's impossible to subsist off of the minimum wage uh, when she wrote her book and she did an, other projects like that uh, she also uh, did one in which she tried to get a job in a sort of mid-level white collar career uh, called bait and switch and she found it was impossible to get a job. And the whole book points to the the insecurity of uh, sort of middle-class, mid-level, white-collar professionals, the the deep labor insecurity there. She wrote on other topics. One book is on uh, the manifestations of collective joy. (laughs) It wasn't all, all, Bummers uh, and downsides. But in the tributes to Barbara Ehrenreich, a lot of people pointed to the fact that anger was actually one of the really motivating things in her work. And she felt it was a key component of political activism and um, any kind of movement for political change. Her fighting spirit, part of it was coming from the anger that she felt over the uh, indignities and abuses and injustices of uh, that people experience personally and collectively. She also wrote a book. Uh, the topic uh, the title is Bright Sided: How Positive Thinking is Undermining America and uh, It was triggered by her own breast cancer diagnosis, and she was having these wellness experts tell her that um, she should just accept everything that was happening to her, and she should treat her cancer as a gift. And if she was not looking at it in a positive way, she was essentially contributing to her own sickness. And that really pissed her off. So I've been struck in recent years, more and more I hear this term negative emotions, Um, you hear that, and I think what does that mean, how, why would an emotion be either positive or negative, an emotion is just what arises naturally based on what's going on, the causes and conditions, but uh, now there's this idea that certain emotions like anger or sadness are negative and maybe, and we have to stay away from them. Um, Aaron reich's book talked about how there's a whole culture a whole industry that's developed around self-help and new age stuff that uh uses being positive as a way to uh, get people away from their true feelings of anger or of sadness Um, and so in the corporate world for example um, uh it's a way to create pliancy and obedience in the, in the labor force and so on. so but what's the problem with anger you know, I mean anger if we look at it from the perspective of Master Dogen and his uh, st- our study text Komyo radiant light or uh, Koenejo study text uh, um, Komyo Sanmai, uh, anger is just the radiant light anger is just buddha light if we think that spiritual life is about putting on angel wings and a smiley face um, well uh, that too is buddha light but it's in a way it's really buddha light L L I all right l-i-t-e if we think it's about putting on angel wings and a smiley face we're never going to be able to help ourselves and help other people when faced with the reality of suffering and when we're faced with the reality of suffering anger arises very naturally and uh, so that's true I think personally and it's true collectively Um, and Mike Davis and Barbara Ehrenreich point to the fact that social movements throughout history have always been fueled by anger Um, social change happens because there is indignation sometimes the movements are progressive sometimes they're reactionary but the anger is a big part of it and that's something that we have to look at. I I was remembering that I think it was in the late 80s uh, someone told me a story about someone they knew uh, who was an activist in South Africa and they worked with the ANC um, to bring down the apartheid government there and what this guy did is he would go into the townships and work with young black men uh, to generate opposition and generate protest, and the way they did that was by stirring up anger and he said it was actually not hard to do at all and it was very effective politically Um, but he had qualms about it because he also realized that they weren't working with these young men uh, to train them to be able to contain anger or to be able to channel anger and so it was a very double-edged sort. and he knew that there were uh, there were problems and costs that resulted from it so this is the point I wanted to bring up tonight and that is um, how do we square this the, the importance of anger that people like Mike Davis or Barbara Ehrenreich point to with the Buddhist teachings about anger and in particular the ninth grave precept of not being angry so remember that in buddhism there are three poisons greed anger and ignorance and that's why i pointed to the beginning of our ceremony we say all evil karma ever um, committed because of our greed anger and ignorance those are the three poisons Um, evil karma, uh, meaning the actions that produce suffering. And if we look at the ninth grade precept of not being angry, the first way to approach it is um, very straightforward, very literal way, um, which I think is basically about uh, having the capacity to restrain yourself when you're angry having the ability to refrain from acting out of anger Um, so I think it's it's helpful to re reframe it the, the precept not as not being angry but not indulging in anger because anger arises naturally causes and conditions but how do we deal with it and so the first basic way to deal with it is by developing the capacity to um, uh, to contain it or to restrain yourself if if you need to if you don't have that education or training or a practice to help you do it then um, if we think of again about young men the easiest thing is you pick up a gun and you shoot the person who makes you upset right or maybe it's not just kids maybe it's an adult that just picks up the gun and shoots whatever whoever is upsetting them mm-hmm. or maybe it doesn't take a gun but to lash out in one way or another against a partner or a child or an employee or a stranger it's so easy to go from anger to conflict, to violence, to great suffering. Unless we have some kind of practice, some kind of um, education that allows us to restrain ourselves when we need to. Um, The second approach is um, not, not so straightforward. It's a little more subtle. It's a little more flexible, recognizing that the appropriate response in any given situation will depend upon circumstances the time and place the relationships in that situation the degree to which you uh you respond um, and from this perspective you know anger again is not intrinsically positive or negative or good or bad in fact Anger is an energy that can actually be used very constructively, and maybe to diminish suffering or to, to be of benefit. So, uh, continuing with the theme of, of young men and boys, I remember when I was about 12 years old, uh, I was at the local high school campus with some friends. It was a weekend, so there was no one around, we thought. And we decided it would be fun to pick up the chalk rock there and see how far we could chuck it and see if we could get it over the the area. uh, fenced in area where the swimming pool was sometimes we didn't make it and the rocks kind of skid around in the pool area or land on the roof of the building next to the pool area. And we were having a good time when suddenly this little man came storming out of the, the building next to the pool area. And he came marching up straight at us and planted himself in front of us. And I felt like he was looking straight at me the whole time. And I could see this storm brewing on his brow. And then he just let loose. He lit into us uh, ferociously and cursed lots of blue language. You fucking punks, you idiots. What do you think you're doing? I was just frozen. My jaw dropped. No one had ever spoken to me like that before. And it really registered deeply. If he had just called out from the, the, the building, hey, knock it off, or he'd come over and said, now, children, I know you're having a good time, but this is not a very prudent... It would have made no impression on me. But this made a real impression on me. Um, I still see the whole thing vividly. And curiously enough, when I, a few years later I went to high school and this guy became my mentor. I would go and read books with him. He introduced me to meditation and he said, he said, one day Zen is going to be a very important reference for, for you. Um, so, uh, So, yeah, um, I think the problem is not anger in and it, of itself. It's when we latch onto certain ideas that come up in our in our anger, and we string them in together into some kind of narrative, uh, or fit them into some kind of ideology that locks us into a kind of box that we can't see ourselves out of. And we're just stuck there. And then there's no alternative, but to to lash out. But that's not the only possibility. And again, our practice and this precept, if we handle it flexibly, can help us to stay present in the midst of our anger. Even as the flames are flaring up, we can still be aware of ourselves and be aware of our situation. And if we're able to do that, It gives us some leeway, it gives us us some ability to act or not act, uh, depending on what's more skillful or um, maybe more helpful or not. So, uh, if we can do that, we can see ourselves. If we don't do that, the anger is just blind and the damage is, is inevitable. So I think that that ability to see ourselves individually or collectively is uh, what Mike Davis and Barbara Ehrenreich are talking about, to see our situation and be able to respond in the midst of anger respond appropriately. Maybe it's um, shutting up or maybe it's disciplining a child, maybe it's um, speaking up um speaking honestly but we can we can do that more appropriately with with practice there is a a third approach to the precept and that is um if we let go of all of our prejudices and our ideas and just feel the energy in our bodies in our hearts, um, the energy of that situation,
1: uh,
0: then we can flow with it, and we can move with it, and we can act naturally, just naturally, according to what's going on. And then it's not even, you can't even put a label on it, like anger, or not being angry, or not indulging in anger, You can't, uh, it's not about refraining from anything, restraining yourself. It's not about discriminating between good or evil or right or wrong or skillful or unskillful. It's just acting freely and naturally in the moment. There's no precept
1: even. And so,
0: uh, so yeah, Bodhidharma looks at this precept from this perspective, uh, the absolute perspective, and he says, um, in the realm of the selfless dharma, not contriving reality for the self is called the precept of not indulging in anger. Not contriving reality for the self And Master Dogen puts it even more beautifully. Uh, He says about this precept of not indulging in anger. Really, really listen to these words. I think they're amazing. He says, not advancing, not retreating, Mm -hmm. not real, not empty. There is an ocean of brightly illumined clouds. There is an ocean of solemn clouds. And that's how we are. We're like clouds, we don't have any fixed set nature, but when circumstances produce it, we flare up and we glow red with the sun. Or if the lights go out, we are dark, like the solemn clouds. So, just to uh, shut up maybe, or just to storm over and give a child a good talking to, to uh, march and chant in the streets against uh, the injustices that we see, or to write down your opinion or express it to a family member or a friend or stranger as you see it. Let go of thoughts wholehearted engagement, body, and mind. And fuck the angel wings and fuck the smiley faces.